The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. It seems like every few months, the Jewish community is forced to face a long-standing issue that has been ignored. Recently, that story has been how we deal with sexual abuse and misconduct, as the story of Chaim Walter and his victims came to the forefront of Jewish debate. The fallout was swift and shocking. Yet somehow, there are those in our community who still shy away from discussing these issues publicly, and some even go so far as to censor others from talking about it. That's why I invited on this week's guest, who certainly knows a thing or two about censorship. Hi, I am Avital Tisha Goldschmidt. I am a journalist living in New York City. Avital is a phenomenal voice in the modern Orthodox community, as well as being highly influential outside the Jewish community, and her understanding of what is and is not considered taboo is probably unparalleled. And I'm incredibly thankful that she agreed to come on and have this discussion. All right, Abital, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a long time in the making, and I'm very glad we were able to finally get together for this type of a, of a discussion. I invited you on here this week to discuss a topic that is related to a large variety of areas of Jewish thought and, and I guess, Jewish discussion more accurately in today's uh, day and age, and that is censorship. And when I say censorship, I don't mean, um, you know, TV censors that beep out things or, uh, or, or anything about like what we are and aren't allowed to say, but things about how, when we discuss certain topics in Judaism, um, how certain areas of Judaism kind of get pushed to the side, like, oh, we, you know what, we're not going to discuss that. And even when we get into those things, we're not going to discuss this particular thing or this particular person. Um, and what brought this on for me was the recent uh, situation with uh, Chaim Walder um, and a couple of things that happened to me personally and in my publication. Um, but before I get into any of that and to any of the extended topics that will come out of that, I wanted to get your uh, definition and your opinion of what is censorship and how is it manifested in our community? Sure. I, I think the best way for me to frame this for you is to explain that uh, this is something that I've been very passionate about for a while. Uh, and I think some people will find this uncomfortable, but I'm going to make this analogy. I come from a family of Soviet Jewish refugees. My parents left the Soviet Union uh, in 1979. And I grew up listening to stories of uh, journalists and writers and artists and singers who were not able to tell their full truths because it was sort of counter to the party uh, ideology one way or another. Uh, you know, there were obviously ways to sort of bypass it subtly, not so subtly. There were massive consequences, depending on what decade you were lucky or not lucky to be living in. Uh, if you did speak out uh, and sort of try to break through that censorship barrier. But to me, censorship is about uh, silencing truths, silencing realities, whether it's news or, or opinions or, or views in the community that are not in a community, in any society, that are not deemed one way or another expedient for those in power. Uh, I will point out that from what I understand, pe when people do 
censor things, when people make a topic or, 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 or any given person a taboo, there is kind of a, a, a well-meaningness behind it. Like they're trying to do something. They're trying to tell you that this is kind of an off limits. We don't touch that. Now, what comes out of that might not necessarily be, be great. It's not, it's not, it's not a great result. Um, but let, let's, let's talk about your family history since you brought it up. The things that they were, the, the things that they were prohibited from discussing, the people who stopped them from discussing it had something in mind. Was it nefarious? Was it positive? What were they trying to accomplish with that censorship? I think this is where the line, the road to hell is paved with good intentions may come in. Um, yeah, I think that the intentions were, it doesn't really matter, I think, actually, um, what their intentions were in terms of, you know, let's say my family history, just because it's an easy and very extreme example of that. Um, there was one intention only, and it was to maintain power for a certain group of people. In that case, that was the party elite. And if you spoke up against that, uh, in that case, uh, about you know expression of Jewish identity or what they would call Zionism, usually those were things that were off limits. Um, now they were off limits in the name of quote unquote communism and a greater brotherly egalitarianism that the Communist Party promised, right? Um, so if you want to call that a good intention, you could argue that, yes. <laughs> right. So it's a good intention in their mind. So however, right. you, however you're going to determine that. Um, yeah. Now, now I want to transpose that into things that we have in our communities nowadays. Um, I'm going to start uh, with basically what I led with at the top of the show. And that is not necessarily specifically a situation involving Chaim Walder, but in general, how we discuss things like sexual assault and, 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 and sexual misconduct in our community um, kind of to the point where we have to speak in, let's all call it a Lashonaki. We kind of, we, we don't exactly attack the situation on hand. We dance around it. We try to, we, we try to protect people's ears from hearing things that they may not want to hear, or we may not want them to hear. First of all, why do we do that? And second of all, what are the consequences of doing that? So I think for the reasons for that uh, are there are some good intentions. I think number one, there is concern uh, from some groups about traumatizing or re-traumatizing or triggering survivors of abuse, of any abuse uh, when reading this sort of thing, right? And that's why nowadays people are sort of very conscious of this and they will post you know, a trigger warning or a content warning before sharing something. Um, so I think there is that concern, though it, there are ways to bypass it, namely by sort of warning people about content. Um, otherwise, I think in a case of Walder, there were two layers. There was the censorship issue, which is, you know, we don't want to talk about what happened. And there's also the issue of him being a powerful, respected person in the community whom no one wants wanted, especially at the beginning, especially when the first round of allegations came out in Haaretz, uh, no one wanted to believe or perpetuate. Um, but the censorship issue is, as you say, is true, that, that that has applied to every, pretty much every other single alleged abuser over the last, let's say, decade. Um, famous 
instances would be the Meshi Zahab story. Um, and about 10 years ago with Nehemia Weberman, those were stories that were just as quickly dismissed, though they were not nearly, I think, as sort of powerful mainstream um, and esteemed as Chaim Walder was. So the, the thing about that is that if we at this point stop mentioning his name, stop talking about him, does that kind of send the impression to other would-be abusers that we're going to sweep this under the rug? Now, there is the, before I let you answer that, there is the alternative um, explanation where I know that there are some news outlets that stopped mentioning the names of, uh, of mass, shooter, mass shooters because we don't yeah. want to give them the attention that they deserve. I would say that in this case, it might be a little different because I don't think the people that are perpetuating these abuses are looking for attention. They're trying to do this under the radar. So right. my, the question, my question, stay in the shadows. Yeah, exactly. So my question would stand is like, if somebody else who isn't a Chaim Walder, isn't of that stature, um, so sees that this is what, this is what happens to him. Well, we kind of just, pretend like he never existed we burn his books we stop talking about him we we just erase him from our memory like if that's the worst that could happen to me is that so bad like oh they're just not going to talk about me forever yeah I definitely think it's a it's an important deterrent uh it's obviously not foolproof and the example of that would be looking at instances of this in secular media in the wider you know western society Certainly abuse happens even when it is reported on. Um, but I think there's less of a culture of it being swept under the rug, uh, especially around sort of powerful um, celebrity people. And we're also, by the way, talking about abuse outside of families. Inside families, I think the story is very different, um, which is, as I understand, the vast majority of cases in the community, right. unfortunately. So when you're talking about someone like a Walder or a Meshi Zahav, a Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, it's certainly a deterrent, uh, and we and we know that to be true. Number one, but I think what's even more important is that it validates uh, victims slash survivors' experiences uh, to read about this for them to understand that they're not alone, right? And that was really the power of the Me Too moment, movement, and whatever you want to say about that. And it was, I think, very heavily politicized afterwards. And certainly, I think there were some. Um, quite a few stories where I think it was overplayed, but in the essence of that movement was very powerful, was showing that this is endemic. Um, and I think that that is really important in, in the, when we as a community talk about abuse is that it's not, it's not just about the perpetrator. It's, I, for me, it's less and less so. It's really about the people who are who go through this experience and validating them and seeing them and saying that we are with you and that we are going to do everything possible to not let this happen again. I, I do want to touch on, because we're doing it right now, what I'm about to say, we're doing it right now. We're calling it abuse, but yeah. that's, not, that's not what it is. It's not the same thing. There's a difference between abuse and sexual abuse. There's a difference between assault and sexual assault. And right. I, I, I want to know if it, if it is and if it is how important it is to actually use those terms because we we kind of as as religious figures as as members of uh, of a highly religious group of people we try not to use these terms we don't want yeah. to say them but is it is it important to make sure that we use the correct terminology if so why and if not why not it's a great question uh 
I, I don't, I want to say that I'm, I'm not sure what the right answer is. And I would probably defer to a psychologist who works in this area um, in, the, in the importance of using the correct terminology. I imagine it is important. <laughs> uh, in general, language matters. Um, the reason I am not medoxic, I'm not care overly careful about using the word sexual abuse, and I'm okay with just saying abuse, is that I do think, as exactly as you said, there are certain sort of etiquettes and norms in our community, and I think some of them are you know, you always have to kind of pick your battles. And for me, that's something that doesn't really bother me as much. And if that is the thing that allows us to talk about it more freely and more comfortably, then let it be, you know? Right, uh, exactly. Now, I, I do want to ask you this because you and I are kind of embedded in the modern Orthodox community. And when you think about censorship um, and forget about, about Judaism for a second, but in general, the more orthodox someone is in their thoughts the, the further extreme someone is the more likely i think they are to be to 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 try to to censor certain ideas and certain thoughts um so now bring that back to our community do you find that there is a censorship issue um that is more let's say endemic in the uh more haredi community or is that something that happens closer to home for the two of us for in, in the modern Orthodox communities? I think you would be surprised by how frequently things are swept under the rug in the modern Orthodox community. And I think there's a certain schadenfreude that I hear sometimes among modern Orthodox Jews talking about Haredi Jews saying, you know, well, in that community, this is a big problem. We have it all figured out. Um, there are certainly differences in approaches and in the way that communities handle things. Uh, both communities do have organizations, it must be said, that try to deal with this issue, um, some for better, some for worse. But overall, I would, unfortunately, uh, I would say that in the last few years, I have seen quite a few instances in the modern Orthodox community where no one wanted to deal with an alleged perpetrator. Um, I will also say that I don't think the quote-unquote media in the modern Orthodox community is any better or any more open-minded. Yes, we will have, you know, pictures of women appearing there, but that's, that's it. Um, we don't really have, um, I don't believe it's more, uh, it pushes the envelope more than one would see in the Haredi community overall, which I know sounds like a very strong statement, but I do stand by it. And I don't want to go through like, names and point fingers because that's not the point but i've definitely seen quite a few failures i think on that front so i oh i of course i 100 percent agree with you saying but i i've noticed that that's not necessarily you know specific to the non-orthodox community what i have noticed yeah. is that any community or any group of people uh political spiritual religious uh, even uh, something like athletics, it's always going to be like, that's a problem that they have. Correct. We don't have that problem here. It's, it's something that I think is more based in humanity than is in orthodoxy. That is always something, yeah. I always acknowledge a problem that they have. I, it's, the, it's not the problem yeah. that, uh, that, that I find in my group of friends, in my circles. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and you, you, you hit the nail on the head uh, that we definitely should be definitely looking more inward when we 
discuss especially topics as serious as this as to what we can do about it um before i go on to anything else uh because i I do have a couple of other Mm -hmm. areas to touch on is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of the censorship of of uh of, of of how we deal with sexual abuse in our community yeah i think the last thing i would just add is that there have been some quote unquote editorials and blog posts initially after Walder committed suicide um, that were sort of like very, either there was like blatant sort of denial that we are not going to get into this, this is not an us to deal with, et cetera. Or there were pieces that were written that were sort of like, you know, this is really a problem, we as a community have to deal with it, et cetera. Most of those pieces were, did not name the perpetrator in the story. Um, most of them were sort of very, I would say would traffic in platitudes and not really sort of offer concrete um, solutions that have been, you know, that are, there were some solutions offered, but they were historically have been very clearly proven wrong. So I, I think overall, the censorship goes hand in hand with this sort of larger issue with the way that we talk about issues in the community, which is like, oh, we have to start an organization. Oh, we have to create a new Besden. Um, a lot of these pundits are not, I think, as I understand, are not attuned to the history of this and it would behoove them to speak with activists and those who have been studying this for years and years and years and know what works and what doesn't work. Um, you know, so I think that, and in general, it's sort of, to me, that whole, all those blog posts and articles were sort of felt to me very lack, uh, lacking in, you know, in, in action and that they, they were just sort of like, they, people felt like they have to say that, um, but Tachlis, like, what are we doing? Like, there are dozens of Chaim Walders walking around our communities today. And I say that as a journalist and as a Rebbitzin, as someone who is well aware of these individuals um, and of the allegations against them. And those in power are not, are not doing anything about it. So I think, and I think that there's, should, there should be urgency about this. And I'm not seeing that urgency. And I think that's what's really disappointing. So a couple of things on what you just said. So first of all, of course, there are, I, I wrote that in an article recently that there, for every Chaim Walder, there's a bunch of people out there that yeah. that are doing the same thing. But even if they get caught and punished, they won't get the press that he got because they're not exactly. who he was. The, the people are much more anonymous than him, but no less dangerous. And the thing you said about pundits is 100% correct in that I am also a pundit. Um, I also have a column and pundits often like to yell and scream about certain problems without offering any any, any solutions. That's one of the issues with uh, modern day media. Um, Actually, the reason that the the kind of the impetus behind this conversation was that I wrote an article for my publication that was Mm -hmm. censored because I wasn't allowed to use terms like sexual abuse. I wasn't allowed to use Chaim Walder's name in it. and for whatever reason, my my publication said I have to change it. So I actually had to rework it. And credit to my publication, the Queen's Jewish Link, 
they allowed me to publish something that was not only critical of censorship, they allowed me to publish something that was critical of them, of, of the paper mm -hmm. in the actual article. I was very, I was highly critical of doing, of, of the paper that, and they allowed me to publish that in my own paper. But you are correct in the fact that while I was ranting and raving about problems, the only solution that I may have offered is to stop censoring, which isn't really going to be a solution to uh, to stop this from happening again. If anything, it might be a solution to help educate other people, but it wasn't really, it was more of a, a getting a frustration out. And I think that's what a lot of us pundits do on a regular basis. Right. So, so let's just take a step back for a second and consider the, what were the two sort of strikes that took Walder down, if you really boil it down. Mm -hmm. Number one was investigative journalism. And number two was a Besden that was willing to take him on and willing to listen to testimonies of victims. Um, by the way, behind both of those strikes was a group of young Haredi women activists who knew that this was a problem and who sort of helped coordinate this. Um, so those are concrete things that could be done. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'm obviously biased. I'm a journalist, but to my mind, the only thing that that even pushed for the best thing to happen was Haaretz. At the end of the day, were two reporters who invested months of their lives and risked a lot to tell the story. Um, and that is something that does not exist in the firm community, right? So like censorship and commentary, ooh, that's like, you know, that's kind of the, the smaller chunk of the problem. The big chunk of the problem is there's no one doing actual any reporting on the firm community. I mean, yeah, you'll see a firm magazine publish an article about a quote unquote issue like, you know, uh, I don't know, tech addiction or like drunk yeah, alcoholism, like a decade after that became an issue. Right. That's not investigative reporting. It's not a finish. You know, we don't have anyone doing that sort of work inside the community currently. Um, and if you do want to do that sort of work, like myself, you have to go outside the community to find a place for it. So I think that that sort of censorship is even more um, dangerous than the censorship of commentary. And and as a columnist, people often ask me if I'm a journalist. I I am not. I'm a columnist. I I am not. A, I'm not an investigative anything. Um, I have the utmost respect and admiration for people who spend their lives doing these things and digging into these stories. And I think the reason that we don't find that more in the from community is because of the vast expense that comes with it. Um, the the only places that could really afford to have investigative journalism are the people with a lot of money. I don't think that we have a lot of that in from press these days. There is a lot of money, but I don't know if there's enough to support the amount that it would take to have investigative journalism. Um, yeah. it, would be, it would be a phenomenal thing for us to have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's so hard. And, and, and all the credit to you guys who, who do these things. Um, and of course, we're all appreciative. Half the things that we know today uh, about the the goings on of the underground is because of investigative journalism. I think like the other part is because of police work and detective. Uh, but that's basically yeah. what you're doing. You're 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 the detectives um, without having to make an arrest. Um, what I I, I do want to shift now a little bit to some of the other areas that we kind of don't censor, and why do we think that these areas 
um, don't receive the same type of treatment that that um, that sexual abuse does. And when we talk about things that we uh, that are taboos in our society and our from life, we really this is one of the major ones. But there are other areas that are also terrible according to our values, according to our Torah values that we kind of just accept these days. The number one easy one is Chilol Shabbos. Um, it is so easy for people to call out Chilol Shabbos. It, and it's also easy for people in the firm community to accept others that are Mechal Shabbos. Why is Chilol Shabbos something that is so much easier to discuss and talk about than what we have been talking about until now? An interesting question. Um... I mean, I, I, I'm curious which specific examples you're referring to, but I don't want to get into it with you on the recording. Um, but I'll, 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 make it, I'll make it more yeah. specific without citing specific examples. Sure. Um, if a person walks into shul and they're known to have been Mahal Shabbos, maybe they won't oh. get an aliyah, but they'll be welcomed. They'll, they'll get a seat in the shul. They will have no problem, you know, fitting in with society. Just everybody knows, all right, that guy or that, that lady, they, they don't keep Shabbos. Maybe you just shouldn't eat in their house. Um, whereas someone who is known to be a, uh, who, who has been suspected of committing atrocious acts, um, right. if we sweep it under the rug and we don't kind of acknowledge it, they're kind of melded into society. We kind of allow them to continue doing what they were doing. They'll get the aliyah. They'll be able to sponsor a kiddish. They'll get an invite for lunch at some places um, and people will go to their house. So why the difference in those two areas? I mean, I do think there is an, an Indian of there's a difference. And I, I will say that obviously I'm you know, very influenced by my surroundings and serving a community in Manhattan you know, Shabbos is like kind of a personal question uh, in certain communities. In certain communities that affiliate is not an Orthodox, um, it's sort of like a personal question. So, yeah, so I, I feel like for me, that's not, uh, it's, uh, it obviously really, really highly depends on the community you're talking about, the milieu within this, within which this social dynamic is taking place. Um, you know, in a community where there's sort of no questions asked, I'm sort of, I, I understand why that is so, in that it's sort of, it's a personal, it's seen as a personal decision, um, and you don't want to alienate someone um, who could return to keeping Shabbos or come to keeping Shabbos for the first time in their lives. Uh, so I think it's very, that is sensitive. Um, All right, so let me, yeah. let, me, let me change, let me change the, uh, the topic then. Let me change the, uh, the, the analogy. Uh, someone who commits a white collar crime. So the difference between the way we treat someone who has committed a white collar crime and maybe was even, you know, tried, sentenced, uh, found guilty, the whole thing, and now they're out of prison. Yeah. So the way we treat that person versus the way we treat the person accused of, of other misconduct. Um, I think they're both treated pretty well in the firm <laughs> community. That's the truth. Um, and I think it really does depend on the case in terms of the white collar crime. You know, there are instances, our communities have never been immune from crime. There have always been criminals in our midst. And I think the notion, which I think 
a lot of the censorship quote-unquote propaganda media has created is that like Kulana Tzadikim like that's not true like there have always been criminals and mafiosos and gangsters and abusers and thieves in the in the Jewish community and if you ever study you know Shalot Tchuvot the response of Rabbanim over the centuries you see that come through very evidently um so I think it, it does again depend on the, on the on the case and there are some times where you know, someone has done shuva, and you know, in terms of financial crimes, uh, and have sort of served, and that doesn't mean they shouldn't be allowed back in shul necessarily. Uh, that also does not mean that that person needs to get a cover uh, of a magazine, right? Or be be revered and honored with all the kibudim at a at a at a dinner or something of that sort. Uh, I think we want to sort of differentiate between the two very clearly. Yeah, I mean, in general, unfortunately, I think financial crimes are much more common than we realize inside the firm community. Uh, and that is true with, regarding in for-profit businesses and non-for-profit organizations. A lot of this is happening all around us. Um, and we sort of just let it happen. So um, I, I don't have a good answer for you. I do wonder, again, for me, the question always comes back to this question of, well, where is journalism that uncovers this, that sort of, that does the work of being that disinfectant? The sunlight is the best disinfectant, according to Judge Brandeis. And um, I do wonder where it is. So do you, there are certain areas that we've discussed so far that are specific to within the, the from community. I don't think anybody is doing investigative journalism on, on people that are Mahal Shabbos. I don't think that's going to be something no. that no. people are going to be interested in reading, nor is it probably appropriate. Um, but how much of the journalism that needs to be done or the policing that needs to be done has to come from within our community uh, versus somewhere else? So if a person is caught committing a white collar crime, if a person is caught committing a, 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 a some sort of, uh, of, uh, of a sexual abuse crime, is that the responsibility of us within the community to investigate that? Or is that just something that we say, hey, let's report this to the appropriate authorities and we'll let them deal with it. I, that's my, my job is to make sure that the right people know it um, versus having someone within our community dig deeper. A great question. Um, usually, I mean, what happens in the wider, you know, world is generally there's a, there's just certain stages. There's the initial research and investigation that is done by either a reporter or a concerned citizen or someone who sort of is a whistleblower within an organization, let's say. And then the moment there is some some sort of evidence of wrongdoing, that is passed on to to the authorities. The reason I think the authorities are really important, which I think has gotten a short shrift in the last month, two months of conversation about abuse in the firm community, is that I think we often, uh, there's this inclination, especially in more right-wing communities, but the truth is I see this in the modern Orthodox community as well, is that we are going to take this and deal with this internally. Our rabbinim will deal with it, our batezim will deal with it, the principal, this, that, the reality is it's extremely hard to deal with those sorts of crimes at those sorts of levels internally. They are almost never solved internally. 
Um, and not only that, I want us to take a, a moment and consider the position that that puts community leaders in. And I think it's an unfair position. And I say this as a way for the rabbi, like uh, very few rabbis feel secure enough in their positions, in their, you know, futures, in their, just literally sometimes there's concerns about physical safety and taking on some of these gangsters, right? So what do you, why are we putting the onus on them? Why are we putting the onus on them? Mm. I I don't think that's right either. So what what do you do as a person in the community? What do you do as a community leader? Because I could ask you that question as as from both of those positions. I think you can find yourself as in any given time as one of those people, community leader or just a member of the community. So if you're saying that we shouldn't be putting that onus on the community leaders, who should I be putting that onus on? And if you're a community leader, what do I do once that onus has been put on me? I think the bottom line is to go to the authorities. And my point is that it's in their own, it's in the community leader's own interest to support reporting to the authorities Mm -hmm. because it protects them from having to be, you know, the ones carrying this burden on their shoulders too. Right. And I think those who are sort of calling on internal solutions don't understand that, don't understand the extent to which this, how badly this can go. Um, And also, I think some of them, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a cop out. They think that, that these things just need to be solved inside, just like all problems need to be solved inside, just like the handling of COVID had to be handled inside or educational issues have to be handled inside. Unfortunately, the reality is sometimes you do need someone to come in from the outside to help you clean up your house. That's it. Here's the thing. You said the these things have to be handled inside. And as you were saying, these things have to be handed inside. I could picture people in their mind saying to themselves, oh, she's talking about this community, not my community. Right. Everybody, everybody who was thinking, not everybody, I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't disparage my entire audience, but a lot of people who were, who were listening to you saying mm-hmm. that, they pictured a particular community in their minds when they said that. And the point that I think we need to drive home here is that don't think that these issues are exclusive to other no communities. Way. There are, sure. they're, they're endemic yeah. in, in all of these communities. Maybe the scale is different. Maybe some communities are better at certain things and worse at other things, but they're there. They're, they're there regardless of, of where you think you are, uh, of, of, of where you are politically, of where you are religiously, of, of how close physically you are to your neighbors, whether you live in a city, where you live in the suburbs, or you live in a rural area. All these things are there. It just where where to find them. I have a question for you as a journalist. At what point do you approach the authorities? You're working on a story. It's taking you months. And all of a sudden you think, okay, this, this is something that I need to get the police involved. At what point do you go approach the authorities? Do you worry that that might damage your story? Um, how does that work with, with you just on a, an internal level? Good question. Um, it depends on how much evidence you've amassed. So, you know, if you have a smoking gun, I believe that is certainly enough. Um, my contacts in various authorities and agencies have told me that you don't even need that much. Meaning, you know, if you if you have a if you have a hunch about something, something really bad is going on, you should make that call. Now, when it disinvolves abuse, uh, this is extremely sexual abuse. Uh, this gets very complicated, of course. Uh, if it's a child, 
if it involves a minor, you're, you know, you, you, you call the authorities without a question. Um, if it is someone who is an adult, uh, it's, that's much more complicated and they have to sort of, you, you know, obviously they, they have to give their permission um, for that to be done and they have to be ready to testify. So the, the last question that I want to ask you is how can we, what can we do to combat censorship? What is there, is there something that we should be doing? Is there something that we should be pushing for? Um, and if so, what is that? I think at this point, the only answer to that is social media, to be honest. Um, I don't think this is ever going to be fixed in the current publications as they stand. Um, their revenue models do not allow for that sort of frank discourse or any sort of real journalism. Um, so I think we sort of have to remove remove our rosy colored glasses that those are things that again are going to be fixed inside and sort of think creatively around um around those institutions around those realities um and and figuring out what are independent channels of information it's funny this is the second this is the second podcast that i've done where somebody actually promoted social media the first one was how it's impacted the aguna crisis saying so, yeah and, and absolutely it's another area where the the kind of we turned a blind eye to until it's been shown on um i mean consider for a second just sorry just to bring back to russia because i think it's a really good example but you know alexei navalny became an opponent became you know this massive activist with a huge following because he knew how to use social media to really mobilize the masses now it doesn't always work, and you know, look at the Arab Spring that that kind of failed. <laughs> um, but but certainly it can be used in the right if it's used correctly. It can be used in a very yeah, I think, in a constructive way. I would say in the last ten years, the people who have been the most successful have done it through social media. The people with the yeah. biggest, loudest voices. I, exactly, one hundred percent agree. Um, before I let you go, I want to give my audience a chance to find out where can they read your work. Um, where wh- what publications are you in? Sure. Uh, right now I'm writing for a bunch of different publications. Uh, so you can, the best thing to do is to follow me on social media. Now that we just spoke about it. Uh, my handle on Twitter and on Instagram is Avital Rachel. Um, I'm not yet on TikTok. Please don't force me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're going to link to all of those on all social medias. Uh, we are also not on TikTok. Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, Thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate the time that you've given us and good luck to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Abital Shisha Goldschmidt for joining us this week. One of the most poignant points that Abital made is the need to have more investigative journalists working for our media outlets. Opinion columns and reporters are one thing, but for positive change to be made within our community, someone is going to have to get their hands dirty. We can't always rely on the outside world to resolve our problems. I hope you found this discussion enlightening, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Until next time, Kultur. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sreli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg. Follow us on Facebook at The Jewish Living Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish underscore living. You can also email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.
Um, Try that again. I'm just going to do it Avital because I've always, I, how do you pronounce that middle part of your name? Chizik. Chizik. Okay. 